relationship. All right. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14 is, again, part of a pause, if you will, in the midst of the tribulation. These are future events. We have walked chapter by chapter up to this point. We have seen chapter 1 where John wrote the things that he had seen. He saw the resurrected Christ, alive and glorified. That's exciting. We saw in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 the things that are. And we presently live in that dispensation, if you will. Seven letters to seven churches representing seven epochs of church history. I believe, and many theologians believe, that we are living in the seventh epoch, the letter to the church of Laodicea. He had instructed John to write the things which he has seen, the things that are, and the things that will be hereafter. Chapter 4 introduces us to the things hereafter. It begins the first verse with the Greek phrase metatauta, after these things. And so we see a type in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, the church in heaven. Someone say amen. You and I, a day is forthcoming. Jesus Christ is coming soon. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we see that in type in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, the church in heaven. Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19 is kind of the meanwhile statement. While the church is in heaven for their seven-year honeymoon, if you will, our time with our Father, our time with Jesus Christ the Son, our time with the Spirit of God, a time of reward where gifts are given to the church. Meanwhile, back on earth, Daniel, the prophet's 70th seven that had been determined for his people and the holy city, Jerusalem, and all of the inhabitants of the earth, the Jews who rejected their Messiah and the world who is a Christ-rejecting people will receive the culmination, if you will, of their due for their rejection. God's wrath will be poured out. And so we saw in Revelation chapter 6, the seven-sealed scroll. The seven seals were broken in between the sixth and the seventh seal. We saw the initial parenthetical pause. There was a break, and that is chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we saw 144,000 male Jews sealed with the seal of the Father's name in their forehead. The seal of God, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. Then, as the seventh seal was broken, we were introduced to seven trumpets, the seven trumpet judgments. We've actually seen all seven now trumpets blown. Chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh trumpet sounded. But we're in that pause still. There's, there's that pattern that God has where he makes a pause seemingly between the sixth and the seventh. And there was a pause in there. 
and it really was chapter 10 and a little bit of chapter 11, but there's an overflow. We've heard the seventh trumpet sound, but we won't see the contents of what that trumpet is until we get to chapter 16, where we will see the seven bowls of God's final judgment poured out on a Christ-rejecting world and a nation that rejected their Messiah. And remember that God's wrath, if you will, is redemptive in nature. Very different than the wrath of man. The wrath of man is recompense. But remember that Christ took all of the punishment of sin upon his shoulders at the cross at Calvary. God's intent through discipline to bring some yet into the kingdom of God. How many of you are thankful for God's redemptive behavior? How many of you are thankful for his discipline in your life? Hallelujah. That has brought you to the foot of the cross. Thanks be to God. And so, we come to Revelation chapter 14, and there were many things that we saw in Revelation chapter 12. We were introduced to seven personages. Again, these are signs and symbols. But we saw the nation Israel. We saw the man-child who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We certainly were introduced to Michael, the archangel. We were introduced to uh, Lucifer, the fiery red dragon, again. As we came to chapter 13, we were introduced to two more persons, the Antichrist and the false prophet. These two, along with Satan, make up the unholy trinity. Remember, Lucifer is the one who roams around as an angel of light. He is mimicking everything that God the Father has done. Even unto that Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he is mimicking. And so we have the unholy trinity. And so now we come to Revelation chapter 14. What I would love for everyone to take home with them today a biblical truth, a principle, a character of our God. He is faithful. He is faithful. And his keeping power has got you. Will you say, he's got me together? He's got me. Let's say it again. He's got me. He's got you. Come on. That's what, I want you to, that's what I want you to end up with today. So that being stated, let's read together the first five verses. It says this, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps they sang as it were a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn that song except the hundred and forty four thousand who were redeemed from the earth these are the ones who did not defile with women who, who were not defiled with women for they are virgins these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God 
and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, in these next few moments, as we look into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, may you inspire us, may you encourage us, may you remind us of the truths that are contained within the word of God are applicable in our lives daily. That, Lord, we would abide in you and that we would simply come under the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said a strong amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, I should say this, that hermeneutically speaking and exegetically speaking, there is something very prophetic about the portion of Scripture that we have just read. And therefore, for us to be emphatic about what exactly is being said would be not appropriate, but we have understanding, for we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we would understand the Lamb here to be no one less than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth and the world. We would understand that Mount Zion here is likely the Mount Zion in heaven. Recognize this, that Hebrews 12 and verse 22 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So there's reference to this heavenly Mount Zion, Mount Zion being in heaven. Remember this also that Psalm 2, in reference to the Messiah, he says this, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Recognize that Jesus Christ will take, eventually, the throne of David, the king, in Jerusalem, upon Mount Zion. He will be there, because the word of God declares it. He is coming again. He will first take his saints home, we will be with him for seven years, then he will return a rider on a white horse who will come and he will rule and reign in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now then, these 144,000 of these sealed ones that are with him, recognize this, that these are the sealed ones that we saw in that window earlier on in chapter 7 when they were sealed with the seal of God. Early on, sealed with the seal of God and sent forth to proclaim the gospel. We use the terminology they would be like 144,000 Billy Grahams going out and sharing the gospel with every man, woman, and child as they proclaim the good news. And there will be those, and we saw in chapter 7, there are those that received Christ as Lord and Savior. And they gave their lives as martyrs during the days of the tribulation, those seven years. And here we find them at the tail end or near the end And how many are there still? 144,000. Not 139,999. Not 143,998. Not 143,997. 144,000. And I bring this to your attention. Because this is not the first time in Scripture where we see God's keeping power displayed. 
And I would suggest to you this morning that God's keeping power, His keeping power has got you. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, for your salvation, God's got you. And God's got me. I will come back to that phrase, having his father's name written upon or in their forehead at the tail end of today's message. So we have these sealed ones, and nearing the end, we recognize that he has lost none, his keeping power. I'd like to today at least notice that verse 4 of our text reveals their obedience to the one who sealed them. I think this is key, and I think this is noteworthy. That verse 4 tells us in our text, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, let me say this real quick. This definitively could be literal, that these are Jewish males that have not engaged in any form of fornication at all. In today's society, where sexual sin is prevalent, and the Spirit of God still dwells, and the children of God still dwell upon the face of the earth, wickedness is prevailing in many regards. Promiscuity has grown rampant and is in epidemic state. With the advent of the internet, pornography invading the homes of nearly every family in some level. And not just those in the world, those in the church as well. And here, at this point in time where the church will be removed, where the Spirit of God has been removed from the face of the earth, promiscuity, fornication, adultery, sexual sin will be unleashed. And these have not defiled themselves. They've kept themselves. I think there's wisdom there. I think there's wisdom there for everyone sitting in this room or standing in this room. There's wisdom in keeping oneself pure. We can do so by the power of God. But let me say this as we go a little bit further. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I think there's wisdom there as well. I dare say everyone in this room could take heed to those words. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It's not part of the sermon, but let me just simply say this. Do you know that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will go places in your heart and reveal you to you for a reason? We should go there with Him. And the things that He reveals about us to us, we should walk in lordship under him because he is love and we should be willing to obey and abide by the things that he instructs us at those times if there's corruption in the heart of all men which there is may the spirit of god 
and the Word of God bring revelation knowledge to us that we would, in the power of God, scale those walls and bring them tumbling down. Can I get an amen? Amen. Now then, let's move forward. That was a little side note. I'd like to today just bring to our attention a few more times in Scripture and a few more circumstances in Scripture where God's keeping power keeps His children safe, keeps His children protected, keeps His children, period. Keep in mind, those that are kept have come under the authority of God and have obeyed and abided. Let's first consider the cataclysmic storm, the storm of storms, a storm like no other storm that has ever stormed the globe, the cataclysmic flood of Noah. I don't have time this morning to develop what it must have been like on the day that God closed the door. You see, Noah, a man of righteousness, had been preaching righteousness. You can read the story in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. He had been preaching righteousness, and he was the only man found righteous upon the face of the earth. Mathematicians and theologians have estimated many different potential population numbers. But a normal number that comes up is that the population of the world at the time of Noah may have been as many as 6 billion people. 6 billion people. Does that number seem to ring a bell? We're somewhere around 7.5 billion now upon the face of the earth. We've been close to those numbers before. Only one was found righteous. The storm that was coming, here's the interesting piece of the storm that was coming. You see, God told Noah that water was going to fall from the sky. It had never rained before. You can read it in the text. God, in the beginning, caused a mist to rise and fall from the earth, rise and fall, and rest upon the plants to water the entire surface of the earth. The world that then was, Peter tells us, was destroyed. That world was very different than the world that we currently live in now. Very different. In fact, most would hold that there were no polar ice caps on that world. There was a universal temperature because God had placed a canopy of water around the entirety of the globe. The harmful rays of the sun could not pass through that translucent water shield, if you will, and men lived longer. The barometric pressures across the entirety of that sphere, that greenhouse, if you will, would have been very different. Do you know that as a result of certain barometric pressures, venoms of some poisonous snakes and insects become a positive in the human system. Somehow they are changed and they become a positive additive, if you will. How interesting that today 
we make our anti-venoms from the actual venom. This storm came in a storm like no other storm. In fact, God said after, he said, I will not destroy mankind ever again with such a cataclysmic flood. Recognize also that the bowels of the earth broke forth and the waters came. So the canopy dropped and the bowels burst forth their water and water covered the entire earth. Every mountain and the highest peak more than 20 feet beneath water. Eight in all were saved. It's interesting that God instructed Noah to build him an ark and that he would bring two of every kind and seven of some types of the animals and God would protect them. And he was told, Noah was told to seal the ark with pitch. It's an interesting word in the Old Testament. The word pitch there, its meaning is atonement. It was covered within and without. It was atoned, and those that were in the ark were covered, and they were protected. God's sealed ones. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives were protected. And how interesting that when the waters began to recede and the day came that the ark was going to rest on Mount Ararat, it happened to be the 17th day of the seventh month. The ark rested and the door was opened and Noah and his family and the animals came out. It was the new beginning, if you will, for the human race. A new beginning. How interesting, thousands of years later, after God had taken the seventh month and made it the first month at the time of the Passover, that on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, Jesus Christ would be crucified upon the cross at Calvary. And on the 17th day, he would come forth when the door was opened to the tomb. And there was a new beginning for all mankind. The church was given birth. I don't think that's by accident. That's a little side note. I think that's pretty exciting. But at the end of the day, you may be here today and you may be facing a storm of some type. There may be a tempest swirling around you, outside of your control. You might be like the disciples who were on the lake that one day when they were crossing from one side to the other following the commandments of Jesus. We're going to the other side. Jesus asleep in the nose. These experienced fishermen on a, on a large vessel were being swamped. The waves were crashing in and they were fearing for their very lives. Maybe you're in a storm around you that you are fearing for your very lives. Be reminded Jesus is in your boat. You're going to make it to the other side. He's got you. His keeping power will stay you. Sometimes he speaks to the storms and says, be still. Other times he speaks to his child and says, be at peace. I've got you. I've got you. You can't tell the future. You're fearful of what the future holds. But he's the one who's in the boat. And he said, we're going to the other side. You'll make it. Come on, that's good. So will you say that with me? Amidst my storms, God's got me. Amidst my storms, God's got me. Amidst my storms, God's got me. 
Let's consider next Gideon's army. Most of us are familiar with the story of Gideon, found in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. Gideon's an average guy. Say that with me. Gideon's an average guy. Gideon's an average guy. Yeah. Everyone here, we're average folk. A bunch of average folk. That's encouraging to me. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God adds to our natural, his super, and supernatural things happen. That's encouraging, and I hope that's encouraging for you. God called Gideon out of a wine vat while he was threshing a small amount of wheat for his family and said, hey, you're going to deliver your people from the hand of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. You're going to deliver them. He says, me? I'm a lowly dude. He says, perfect. Perfect. I'll use you. So Gideon made a call to as many that would participate. And many came. Many Israelites came and joined an army and said, hey, we're going up against the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. And God says, Gideon, you got yourself a great army here, but I want you to know something. There's too many. There's too many. Will you wean this thing down a little bit? Here's how you're going to do it. And he says, hey, anybody who's afraid, go home. Like a whole bunch of them went home. <laughs> a large number. He says, that's great, Gideon, but you still got too many. Take them down to the water and have them drink some from the brook. And you'll see that a certain number drink by doing a certain hand motion, while others will just bury their face in the water. And he winnows the army down to 300 men. 300 men. How many of you know that 300 with God is a majority? How many of you understand that today one man with God is a majority? Is a majority. God winnowed this army down to 300 so that the children of Israel would never say, look what we did. Look what we did. He said, no, you will say, look what God did. Look what God did. You see, the Amalekites, or excuse me, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east totaled in warriors 135,000 against 300 agricultural farmers who had pitchforks and scythes and other tools. 300 against 135,000 warriors. God likes those statistics. What is impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible. Say that with me. All things are possible with God. So, Gideon goes out. God gives him a plan. He lays out the army, breaks the earthen vessels, the lights shine, the army's aroused. 120,000 of them are destroyed almost immediately. They begin to fight amongst themselves because they can't see anything. It just appears to them that there might be a whole lot of Israelites or something, but they started fighting one another. Can I say to you that God will fight your battles? The battle is the Lord's. The Word of God says. Now here's the interesting thing about the 300. We don't have the totality of the picture and how much they were involved with that first 120,000, 
that were gone. But we find the 300 a little later still chasing down the 15,000 that were remaining. They were running. They were hightailing it from 300 Israelites. The word of the Lord says in relationship to the Israelites, one can send 1,000 to flight, two can send 10,000 to flight. Listen, with God, with God, you and I can send the enemy to flight. The 300 arrived to the river. How many arrived? How many arrived? How many did he start with? 300. Do you realize at the end of the battle, 135,000 Midianites, Amalekites, and people from the east were destroyed. And not one of Gideon's warriors died. 300. His keeping power will keep you in the midst of the battles that you are facing to this day. Now recognize, again, Gideon obeyed the Lord. Like Noah obeyed the Lord. Like the 144,000 followed the Lamb wherever he went and we're not defiled. They obeyed and abided. I submit to you this morning, if you will but obey and abide, God will keep you. You may still go through the storm. You may still have the battle. You, You notice that he didn't take the storm away from Noah. You notice that he didn't take the battle away from Gideon. He simply enabled them to pass through the storm, and he enabled Gideon to march right through the midst of the enemy while the enemy was being destroyed. He will do the same for you and I, his children, to battle. I'm thankful. Psalm 18, verse 29, reminds us, by you, I can run up against a troop. By you, I can come up against a troop. By you, I can. By you, I can. By you, I can. Philippians, Paul in writing to the church of Philippi, I can do most things through God who strengthens me. How much stuff? All things. By Him. Listen, no matter the battle you are facing, no matter the storm, God's got you if you will obey and abide. Obey and abide. Why is it that we want to fight our battles in the flesh. As though somehow winning an argument with our spouse is somehow going to win. Why do we fight those battles that way? Why do we fight our battles when we are against another brother in the Lord and we have something that's in the midst of that? Do you know that the Scripture says, why not rather just be wronged? And love one another with fervent love. How about a little self-denial? 
wait, let me rephrase that. How about a lot of self-denial? How about a totality of self-denial? Like Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, if we would simply wage war with the weapons that God has provided for us. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God pulling down strongholds. If we would but fight with the Lord and not with the flesh, the power of His might and not our own. So the battles. Amidst my battles, God's got me. Will you say that with me? Amidst my battles, God's got me. Say it again. Amidst my battles, God's got me. Praise God. I have a lot to share. I know the time is going longer. What I do. (laughs) Consider next a familiar story to most of us. Three young Hebrew men. During the days of the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonians came. They were really given the nation Israel for nation, the nation Israel's punishment for 70 years. The nation of Israel had disobeyed. And in the process of their disobedience, They did not, for 490 years, give the land its Sabbath day's rest. And the Lord declared, I will get my Sabbaths. And so he brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian people. And Israel was put in captivity. And it's in the midst of that captivity, bondage, slavery, that three young Hebrew men, when a statue was made, of King Nebuchadnezzar and erected some 60 feet high, 6 feet wide, and at the blast of six trumpets, you might notice the 666, man, man, man. And they were instructed to bow down, man, 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 bow down to man. These three stood. We will not bow down. We will not cave in to the crowd. The whole crowd may be going one direction. Just like in any river or stream, any dead fish can flow downstream, but it takes a live one to go upstream. These three stood against the tide. These three stood against the current. These three stood against the culture will not bow down to what man says, what man declares. Listen, man right now is declaring to you and I what beauty is. Do we need to bow down to Hollywood's description of what beauty is? Or do we say yes to what God says beauty is? I'm thankful that God makes no mistakes. Hallelujah. Look at your neighbor and say, man, you're beautiful. 
Absolutely. Every single person in here is unique. Now look at your neighbor and say, you're unique. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Our adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's lying to people saying they have no self-worth. They have no value. They don't fit the bill. They don't make up the model that has been provided for us. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie from the pit of hell. These did not bow down. Let me suggest this too. In the midst of this trial, we've talked about storms, we've talked about battles, now we're talking about trials. In the midst of their trial, listen, it was already bad because they were in bondage and slavery. It was about to get worse because they would not bow down. Nebuchadnezzar got word of it and said, you bring those cats to me one more time. What is this business that you will not bow down? I've given the commandment. When the trumpets blow, you bow down. I got, you got one more shot. Sound the trumpet. Blast, 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 blast. These fellas stood against the king of the enemy. The king of the enemy. And said, we will not bow down. He said, into the furnace. But before they go into the furnace, crank it up seven times. Seven times hotter. And he cast them into the furnace. They said, we will not bow down. God may deliver us, or he may not. But nevertheless, we will not bow down. They were bound and cast in. Now let me, let me suggest to you for just a moment, because you know the story. The storm, or excuse me, the trial, you may think it's bad already. It may get worse. In fact, it may get seven times worse. But let me suggest to you that when the trial gets more and more difficult, like those young men that were cast into the furnace, those that were unprotected died around them. Those that opened the doors and cast them in were consumed by the flames. But in the midst of the flames, they were walking around. Their those things that bound them were consumed. They were free, and they were walking around. But it wasn't just three walking around. Now, now there was four in the midst of the fiery furnace. One like the Son of Man, a title of Messiah, was walking with them in the midst. I would submit to you, the more difficult your trials, if you will hang fast and stay steadfast, in your obedience and abiding in the Lord. The more the trial ramps up, the more others around you will see Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now listen. He says, how many did we cast into the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar? They said three. He says, how is it that I see four? Bring those cats out. He bowed his knee. In fact, many would believe that eventually, although Nebuchadnezzar had some major issues, 
major issues. Many believe that his latter days, he was a follower of Judaism, and he believed in the Most High God. It's interesting to note that he is one Gentile whose own writings seem to have been inspired by God the Spirit, for they are contained within the book of Daniel, the fourth chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar's letter. It's interesting. I find that very interesting. But all that to say, in the midst of that fiery trial that got severe, their protector, the keeper of their lives, the keeper of their soul, the keeper of their spirit, was with them and carried them through, sealed them from, and shielded them from the fiery It is interesting to me that Psalm 18 goes on from verse 29 to verse 30 and says this, As for my God, His way is perfect. As for my God, His way is perfect. And His word is proven. Is proven. The word of the Lord is proven. The word proven there means refined. Refined as though by fire. If you will stand upon the promises of God in the midst of your fiery trial, God's word will be proven in your life. The promises of God are yes in him and amen in him. I find myself this morning, like the author of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 32, and he says these words, And what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of his keeping power amidst our hardships, amidst our famines, amidst our tribulations, amidst our fill-in-the-blank. So before we leave today, consider the 144,000 that were sealed. Note, the authorized version says that it was written in their forehead. Written in their forehead. I just want to submit this, and this is just a, it's, it's noteworthy to me. The Spirit of God has sealed the believer. The Spirit of God has sealed the believer. We have the Spirit of God. If your faith is in Jesus today, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and he is the seal. He is the guarantor of the things to come. Thanks be to God. These were sealed, as the King James Version of the Bible, or the authorized version of the Bible says, his father's name was written in their foreheads, right here. Forehead. Written. Now, the word written there, if you would read about that particular word in a lexicon, you would recognize also that when the name is referenced, it is also a reference to all those things that he has written or the books that contain the words that have been written by him. Now, I simply say that to say to each one of us, if we would hide God's word in our hearts and in our minds, you know that in the, it, science says that the frontal lobe of the brain, and I'll, I'll, I'll conclude with this, we're almost done. The frontal lobe of the brain is the part of the brain that controls important cognitive skills, such as emotional expression. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to live your life on your own emotions 
that are controlled by your flesh, or would you like to have your emotions at least led by the Spirit of God? Right, by the Spirit. Amen? Right. Because emotions left me as an emotional being left into myself, man, I could be, I, I could be pretty destructive. In fact, I could be very destructive. All right? So not only emotional expression, problem solving. How many of us have tried to fix our problems in our own flesh? Yeah. How many of us would rather have God help us with our problems, right? Amen? We need a little bit of God's help. You know, it's our memory. It's our language. It's our judgment. Anybody here ever make bad judgments? Should I sin or not sin? I think I'll sin. <laughs> we just make bad judgments. But if our minds and our hearts are governed by the Word of God, our ability to make right judgment is greatly increased. It's interesting to note that the frontal lobe also controls sexual behavior. Sexual behavior. How interesting. That the 144,000, that's one of the things that is identified. They did not defile themselves. They're not controlled by their physical urges. Their physical urges are in submission to the one who has sealed them. What about us? In all these areas, are we under the authority of the Word of God that is being written upon the tablet of our heart and in our mind, that it would help me to control my emotional responses, that I would be biblical in the application of even my emotions? Because sometimes we just don't want to like someone. But the Word of God says, love your enemies. Do good to those who falsely persecute you for my name's sake. You see, it's not about our name, it's about his name. It matters. The common thread, and I didn't, again, I didn't have time this morning to talk about hardships, adversities, afflictions, catastrophes, famines, the destitutions, the scarcities, the wants, the tribulations, the difficulties, the bad luck. Anybody here ever feel like you just got bad luck? <laughs> As if. Uh, uh, the double whammies, we just get ba-boom, ba-boom. We just keep getting hit. The woes, the wrongdoings when others have wronged us. We don't have time to talk about it, but can I just simply say this? If you will obey and abide, God's got you. He's got you. Let me close with this. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. It's a familiar psalm for us because... It has to do with Christmas. Turn in your Bibles with me real quick. Isaiah 9, 6. In fact, you can stand while we're turning there. Will you stand with me as we turn to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6? The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, says this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of his government, come on up, Pastor Dennis. Of the increase of his government and peace, 
there will be no end. Let me suggest to you this morning, if you will allow His governess in your life, His peace will increase in your life. Are you with me? You see, all too often we try and do it in our flesh. And our peace is out the door. But if we will allow his government, the word of God, written in our forehead, influencing our emotion, influencing our cognitive decision-making, influencing our own reason, influencing our memory, influencing all of those things up to and including all of our sexual behavior and our thought lives. If we will allow His governess in our life, our peace. You know that peace, the peace of God that transcends understanding, where Paul said to the church in Philippi, Philippi, be anxious for nothing but in all things through prayer and supplication. Present your request to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God which transcends understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That peace that we all want. Oh, if we will just allow his government into our lives. Our storms, our battles, our trials. He'll have you. Does he have you? Does he have you today? Yes, he does. Will you obey and abide? If you do, you will know that peace in a greater measure. We're going to sing a chorus. Pastor Dennis will close us. I just want to say a quick word of prayer for you today. If you want to know that keeping power in a greater measure in your life, if that's you, and you say, I just need his keeping power in the midst of my storm, in the midst of my battle, in the midst of my trial. Will you simply say, by raising your hand, include me in this prayer. Is that you? Many hands going up. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we submit ourselves and yield ourselves, even as we see prophetically in Revelation chapter 14, these 144,000 sealed ones sealed with the Father's name, written upon the tablet or written upon and in their foreheads. Lord, so we want your word to govern our lives. We want, Lord, your keeping power to be made manifest in our lives in a greater measure. Though the storm may get worse, we'll be under your covering. Though the battle, the battle may ensue in greater measure, we will walk with you and you will fight our battles for us. Though we may be in the midst of a fiery trial and the temperature may get cranked up seven more times, you will be being made manifest in our lives in a greater measure that others may come into relationship with you and to you and through you. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves and we humbly submit ourselves to the law of the Lord, which is perfect, converting the soul. Lord, will you do that converting work in our lives? We love you and we praise you. And as we sing this chorus, God, may you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said a strong amen. Amen. Pastor Dennis.